Uh, no, I'm really good to be with you guys, and um, uh, you know, it's fun to be back. I do want to tell you, before we get into the, the series on relationology, which we've been talking about for a couple weeks now, is <clears throat> I want to give you um, kind of a sense of how the Mariners, this whole animal works. Um, there, is, there are four campuses, or four communities is a better way to say it, with campuses in them. So there's the Huntington Beach campus, there's the Irvine campus, there's the main campus here at Mission Viejo. <laughs> Uh, this, this sort of the cent- yeah, really. I mean, that's to be honest. I mean, the most influential. Uh, and then there's uh, f- further down the road, there's Ocean Hills, which we talked about last week. And one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is how how is that whole body governed? I mean, there's like there's all these campuses and different people and organization. And the the senior pastor over Mariners, the, all of those campuses, is a guy named Kenton Bishore. And um, right now, he and our elders are away at a retreat. And I don't know, kind of, my own impression of what elders are when I think about it. And by the way, the way we describe the elders, this is the term we use. This only helps to fuel my stereotype of what I think this is like. That they're called the keepers of the vision. Now that sounds to me so much like it's a bunch of wizards <laughs> that are like, you know, they, they, and right now they're on this retreat. The elders in Kenton are on this retreat. And it just sounds like you have to hike your way to some wooded cave that's torch lit in the darkness. And they sit around a stone table and, you know comb their beards with their fingers and just sort of talk about keeping the vision, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, and the, the idea behind there is just simply this, that there are some elder boards in other churches that are really down at the ground level involved in stuff. Like the elder board, you know, could come here and go, you know, that's, that's the wrong shade of blue. And let's form a committee and talk about how we should change the shade of blue and let's make it a thing and they approve the minutes and do all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, whatever it is they got to do. And our elder board, the way that Mariners works, is that they're, they're at a 100,000-foot level. They're not getting involved in those kinds of decisions. They're getting involved in sort of how are we hearing God's sort of direction for the entire, entirety of all of Mariners. It's not just about, you know, these little things, these little kind of decisions. It's about how is God guiding and directing, and how do we keep and maintain that vision for the course of the year. So that's what they're doing on this retreat. And every year, many of you doesn't know this, but, um, well, maybe you do. Um, we have it, we find a church verse that we, God has always spoken to our elder board over the past couple of years through really like one central verse that they've kind of prayed about and meditated over and it's become kind of our sort of battle cry for that season. So for this last year, anybody know what it is? Yeah, see, it's a, it permeates the entire organization. Everybody knows. <laughs> it's just a powerful moment. Um, you might have seen it when you came in. It, sometimes it's animated on the screen. It's that this past year has been, it was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know, which actually I was teaching my kids how to, you know, memorize or whatever, but, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. You might have seen it animated. Anyway, I can tell. It's, it's like I said, it's just sunk right in. But they actually find and do that as well, but they actually get a heart for or a sense of what God's doing for our whole church. And so what I want to invite you to do, even if you're not totally accustomed to it, is I want to invite you to, to pray with me for our elders and, and uh, for Kenton as they begin to hear God's voice about what this next year looks like for us at Mariners. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are, um, we are convinced that you love your church more than any of us could. And we believe that you have called our elders, our leadership, our senior pastor to, um, to hear from you and to understand what it looks like to be bold, to be courageous in following you. God, would you give to them, the elders and their spouses as they're away, would you give to them um, great wisdom? Would you give to them uh, a sense of where you might be leading that we might follow? And God, would they come back energized for what you're doing? Would there be a fresh sense of um, excitement about this next year of ministry together? And God, even as we gather in this place, God, we, we trust in the leadership of the church that you've assembled, and we, God, submit to them, and we submit to you. And Lord, as we sit today, God, would you teach us? Would you empower us to get a better picture of your great love for us, your church? 
And would it give us a sense, Lord, about what it means to love each other even more powerfully in more meaningful ways. So, Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, we are in a series called Relationology. You've heard us talk about it a little bit already. This is the fourth week of that series. Um, and it's been very cool. I've had lots of great conversations. In the middle of it, we had date night. A lot of you guys were there. It was very fun. Another one's coming up April 12th. I talked to some people uh, last service who said, we tried to go. Our kid had a fever. We thought about infecting everybody else's kids, but we, can't, we couldn't make it. So I said, don't worry. It's happening again on April 12th. So we'd love for you guys to be a part of that. But we're seeing all kinds of, of great stuff happen in the series. Last week, if you were here and you heard Doug speak, it was a great message. Um, he, he berated you if you ever choose to use a Bluetooth earpiece. If you want to catch, if you don't know what I'm talking about, he, man, uh, he just said you're a dork. And I just want to just reinforce that a little bit. Our next date night, we're actually going to have a burning of the Bluetooth devices. I don't know if we're allowed to do that. If that's, a, if that's a hazardous deal, but I heard we're doing that. Anyway, but the church, the point is the church here cares a ton about your relationships. We want them to flourish. We want to see them take off. We want to see health. We want to see those things work out in beautiful ways. And we know relationships are a source of the most joy in our lives and the greatest pain in our lives. And um, there's a whole lot of confusion about them. And so that's why we want to talk about them for the past couple of weeks and on into next week as well. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 today mostly. If you want to turn there in your Bible, if you need one, some folks will pass one out to you. If you're like, hey, I'm good, I got an outline. The outline is all the scripture you'll need. We'll have it on the screen as well. But if you need one, just put your hand up. Someone would love to hand one to you. Now, I got to tell you, we're, I got to go kind of quick. We have a lot to cover, and it all matters. Okay, so we're all going to cover a lot of stuff. And I also have to warn you, I'm going to talk about something, and you're going to think, where in the world is he going with this? And you're just going to have to trust me that I will land the plane. The plane will be circling the airport for a little while, going, we're running out of gas. Where are we going to? I will land the plane, I promise, all right? But are you guys with me? Okay, here we go. Let me ask you to start. Uh, just give me a real quick, throw out a couple of the most romantic movie line scenes you can ever think of. Just go ahead. Nobody puts baby in the corner corner from Dirty Dancing. I mean, there's a lot of romantic lines in that movie. I wouldn't wouldn't have picked that one, but don't try to boss me around, I think, is the intent of that, which is good. Nobody puts baby in the corner. What else? Good. What else? Oh, my gosh. The chorus of you had me at hellos in the room. Both sides. We could have given you guys microphones. You could have sung it in parts. Uh, Yeah, you had me at hello, which is also... No, no, but what else is the next line? You can, again, another chorus of people. You complete me. Good, yeah, anything else? Good. Here's looking at you, kid. Good, wow, Casablanca. Uh, the other line from that movie, often forgotten is, no, that's a different movie, but <laughs> also romantic. Yes, uh, frankly, my dear, is what he started out with, which we can't repeat, you know, for those of you in the, the, the more, like, holy side over here was just shaking their heads about that. Uh, but also in that line, I think is we we'll always have Paris, I think is also in Casablanca. What else? I will find you to stay alive. I'll find you to stay alive. What's that from? Um, yeah, Last of the Mohicans. Good. What else? You make me want to be a better man. Yeah, oh yeah, that's good. That's, the, that's awesome. Okay, right. There's also, there's the line someone, you know, I said, that was last service, someone said, uh, from Notting Hill, I'm just a girl. As if you might know it, just, just kind of, you know, as if it might, I don't know, I heard something about like this. Yes, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her, and it's just, what? As you wish. Oh, that's, I'm so bummed nobody else said that until right now. Thank you for including one of the greatest movies of all time. Now, um, for me, like, I remember the first kind of moment in a movie, it's not really a line, it's more of a song, but it's the line, it's the scene from Say Anything. You guys remember this right here? Lloyd Dobler is the world's worst character name. 
But there's Lloyd Dobler, and by the way, everybody believes, you know, there's, there's, a good, there's a good amount of research to support that that ruined his career, because anytime John Cusack was in any other movie, every other person thought, when's he going to do that scene in this movie, you know? But here he's standing outside of his girlfriend's, you know, they're, they're kind of having this fight or whatever, he stands out in front of her, her house, and he's playing the music with his boombox, and it's just winning our Peter Gabriel in your eyes, I mean, it's just unbelievable. But that's the kind of scene. Now, all of these things... All the movie quotes we've created, we've talked about, embody something that's, uh, you know, it kind of captures an idea about romantic love. And I think in so many ways that idea is actually damaging to the way we actually ought to function in, in relationships. Because what we're told in those kind of ideas that are sort of embodied in that sort of sense, the as you wishes and the, and the you know, uh, I'm just a girl and the, you know, like the scene in Sleepless in Seattle where all they say is, it's you, it's you. Now we ride the elevator, I guess, down the thing. You know, we don't know what else happens, but clearly... What we're told through all of these kind of movie scenes, or at least this kind of ethic behind them, is the most important thing you could do is find the right person. And if you find the right person, then the work of relationships is already done. Like, and all it is is, you know, if if things are getting hard, that means I must have found the wrong person, and I ought to go searching for someone else. Now, again, just as a side note, I'm not against being picky and searching for the right person. I have three children. I hope they all pick very wisely, I want them to be very picky about who they, tend, who they choose to be with in relationships and stuff like that. But what I am saying is this, so choosing isn't bad. But what I am saying is it's not the only thing that you have to do. The hard work of relationships isn't just in the finding of another person, it's about something else. When we talk about uh, men and women and their search for that other person, at least the way the world describes it, there are two, you, know, you might, you might and by the way, I'm going to make a couple of generalizations here. So if I, over, if I cross over a line, you're just going to have to bear with me. This is based on, you know, a lot of my own research as a, like a high school pastor for a lot of years, and then also reading some stuff. But it may not include everybody, so just so you know, there's my disclaimer. Okay, so turns out men and women are a little different when it comes to seeking this other magical person that would, you know, do everything that they would ever hope, okay? Now, here, now, Again, so here's what I think the, the, the sort of prevailing world's relationship expert when it comes to women is Nicholas Sparks. So here's what I want you to just, I want you to catch this. Now, guys, you've never even, you've never seen anything like this before, guys. But this is what, like, our world tells 17-year-old girls and so on and up. Here's what it says. A guy out there was meant to be the love of your life, your best friend, your soulmate, the one you can tell your dreams to. He'll brush the hair out of your eyes. Okay, stop right there. I just, I just, the, what's, what's being set up here is that there's going to be a 17-year-old girl on a date, and she will intentionally put her hair into her face, and it'll be right there, and she'll be waiting for some guy, like, do you not, like, waiting, do you not see me spitting my hair out of my face? You know, and the, and the guy's like, I don't know, how, how do we, okay, continuing on. With relationship expert Nicholas Sparks. Send you flowers when you least expect it. (laughs) This is my favorite. He'll stare at you during the movies, even though he paid $8 to see it. There's a couple things going on here. First of all, apparently it's a Dutch date. Like, he paid $8. How much did you pay? (laughs) Secondly, the behavior of someone who stares at you for the duration of a movie in the dark is the behavior of a stalker. (laughs) So there's... (laughs) There's you, there's, you know, the girl, like, watching the movie, and then there's just some dude. Are you, en- are you enjoying the movie? No, I'm just staring at your face. It, it, cost, me eight, it cost me $8, but I just want to stare at your face. 
I mean, that's just bizarre. Okay, then. He'll, he'll call to say goodnight or just because he's missing you. He'll look into your eyes and tell you, you're the most beautiful girl in the world. And for the first time in your life, you'll believe it. Oh. I mean, that's just, uh, girl, yeah, there's clapping. There's a little bit of, I love that. I want that to be, you know, there's a, I saw that over here. There, there's, I mean, this is, is there, if, this is the same exact thing as I'm just a girl standing in front of me. I mean, it's the same exact thing. Now, I just have to tell you, there are guys who manage to fake this for a little while. And because they, they know, they, they just know this is how, they might have had a sister and they go, this is how this would probably work with some of my, yeah, I could figure out how to make this work. Now, let me just tell you, I, I don't know every guy in the world. I don't know any guy who's like this, though. Or I just want to let you know, this is like the, the idea that the guy is constantly, always, and forever cherishing and, over, and just thinking in every moment of his, he can barely function because all he can do is think about you. He just writes cards to you every moment and it just has a post-it note of your, he tries to draw. I mean, everything he can think of, it's just like, my gosh, I don't, I mean, Guys, we're learning how to think about, you know, our spouse, our, our girlfriend, but we're, we're not going to stare at you during a movie. For, you know, it costs $10 for us and 10 for you and 40 for the babysitter and $28 for dinner. I'm watching the movie. I'm sorry. I just want to let you know. <laughs> now, guys, it turns out, are a little bit simpler <laughs> in terms of what they're looking for. Now, this is research from Harvard. Now, I want to tell you. I could ask us in this room, we could come up with exactly the same thing. It doesn't require Harvard, just lends a little credibility to what I'm about to say. So it turns out guys are looking for, um, uh, for one thing, or two things. They're looking for what is sexual chemistry, sort of the, you know, we got that thing going on. Then the other thing is, that guys are looking for, is something that they call a high compatibility factor. Now guys in the room go, yeah, high compatibility factor, that sounds good. Here's, here's essentially what high compatibility factor means when it begins to get a little bit teased out. It's this. I want someone who will take me as I am, and despite, despite the fact that I have all these other things in my life that are probably, you know, a little rough around the edges that need to be sorted out before I enter into this marriage, relationship, whatever else it is, I don't want them to try and change any of them. In other words, the way a guy works is, according to the, with all this romantic stuff, I want a smoking hot person who expects nothing from me. I mean, perfect. I mean, guys are like, yeah, this guy's good. That's, that's it. That's it. That's it. And I am. And, of course, wives are looking like, and you got you, the smoking hot part right, right? That's me. I'm right with you. So, now, all of what that says is, essentially, is this. The world's picture of love is about finding a person who meets every one of my needs. I have these needs, and if I find the right person, they'll be met, and everything will go great. Well, that love is, isn't quite, it's just not big enough. What I want to do is I want to challenge that in so many ways. And some of you are like, don't do that. I have, I, this is, you're going to, this is going to be, it's going to be panic and chaos and fear and cats and dogs living together. It'll be hysteria. Everything will just sort of fall apart. But I want to challenge this notion. I want to give us a broader sense of what God actually talks about when we talk about love. Because I think it informs every one of our relationships. Yes, it informs marriage. Yes, it informs our romantic relationships. But I think it actually has implications for every one of our relationships. Now, I should also say this. In a room of this size even if the room was a third of this size or a quarter of this size, we would have people in this place who would say, I've been wounded in relationships. I've been wounded when we talk about marriage. There's divorce, there's death, there's abuse of all different kinds in the room. And I want to let you know as we talk about this kind of stuff, we're going to talk about God's ideal for stuff, not the way everything is. I just want to let you know, I'm not assuming that everything is working out the way we're going to describe it today. Okay, so let's, let's turn to Genesis 15. Verse 1 says this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Abram is the future name of Abraham. You might have heard of him. He had many sons, many sons and father Abraham. Good. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward, the Lord says. Verse 5, skipping down. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram is really old. I don't think we find out his age exactly until the 17th chapter, which is 99 years old. So when, he, when God tells him, hey, you're going to have as, as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, which is a way of sort of illustrating the blessing God would have on people is that you'd have called seed or ble- like the, this would be part of your offspring. So Abraham, of course, hears that and laughs. <laughs> really? I'm 99. And really, that's why he names his son Isaac, who he actually eventually has a kid named Isaac, which means he laughed. Okay? So he has this, he has this promise given to him by God that he's going to have all, these, all of these kids. It'll be a shield and all this kind of stuff. Uh, verse 6. I'm moving really quick. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it, meaning his belief, to him as righteousness. God, this is, this is really clear. This is really important here. Abram is not the best guy. Abraham is not the best. After he gets another name, meaning father of many nations. He's not the best guy. He's a good guy. He's not that good. Occasionally, you see throughout his sort of story, there's a couple different moments where he tries to pass off his own wife as his sister so that he could, whoever, whatever visitors are coming over, they could have their way with her. I mean, that's like, he's not a good guy. But he's called righteous here because of what he believes about God. So he believes in God, believes in his promise, and God credits to him that belief as righteousness. Okay, verse uh, 7 and I'm going to keep moving. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now what God, say, what God doesn't say here is, I'm the, I'm the Lord your God whom you followed out of this place called Ur, right? It doesn't say that. What it says is, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out. Now, it's really important you catch this. God is the one who makes Abram righteous based on his belief. Secondly, it's God who is the primal mover in this relationship. It's incredibly important that you catch this. It is God who is moving, and it is God who credits Abram's belief as righteousness uh, to himself. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Nine and ten. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, which is a, a cow, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him cut them in two, and arrange the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now, when you read this, as a, it sounds kind of like it's a kind of a clean operation, like they're Lego pieces, and the cow gets cut in half, and there's, it's an incredibly bloody affair. I mean, she's cutting a cow in half. So that you can just imagine the gruesome scene that this is. If any one of us walked in on this scenario, we would just think, this, this is horrifying. We're, I mean, this is the worst movie scene we can imagine. But there's Abram cutting animals in half, except for the birds, right, whatever. So there's this huge bloody scene. And what you're wondering is, why in the world is, there, is this being, why is this a part of the story? Now, here's what's going on. In the ancient world, when two parties would make an agreement called a covenant, what they would do is this. They would cut an animal, and there would be blood. And the two parties would meet in the middle, and they would embrace. And they would essentially be saying, <clears throat> stamping around in this blood, they'd essentially be saying, I curse myself. Should I break the covenant? That this would happen to me if I break the covenant agreement. I'm standing in the blood such that if, if, I'm to, if I violate the terms of the covenant, this would be my fate. So this is, this is what's happened. This, this is the way agreements are made in the ancient world. And that's, what be, that's what's being set up here. Uh, let's see, verse 12. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick, dreadful, thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Let me stop right there. Anytime you see the thick and dreadful darkness, 
Something along those lines, or a thick cloud covering over. This is, this is, a, this is a, like sort of a preamble to God's presence dwelling on his manifest presence showing up in a very real tangible way. You see it when the Israelites get the Ten Commandments, same kind of thing. They're at Mount Sinai, cloud comes over, there's all this darkness and covering, and it's intended to express the awe and reverence for God. Here comes God. It's a big deal. He's showing up in this way. Uh, verse 17. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. The smoking you know, fire pot and the blazing torch is emblematic of God's presence. And it is God's presence which moves between the cut pieces. So you have all of the, the sort of the bloody carcasses and all that stuff on the ground, and you see God moving between. Verse 18, on, a, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt, which is like a, a riverbed, uh, to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, remember that a covenant is made between two parties. They both stamp around in the blood together and, and they curse themselves saying, may this happen to me, should I violate this oath? Only in this case, in this covenant, there are the pieces there and God's presence alone is coming between the pieces. Which means he bears the full weight of the covenant responsibility between himself and Abram. Should either one of the parties violate the covenant, God himself bears the curse of that covenant breaking. This is a picture of God's love. It's a picture of God's love that says, I will chase, I will pursue, I will bear the weight of the curse upon me, I'll die to uphold the terms of this covenant that you might have what's promised to you. This is the covenant that God describes. This is the way in which he tends to relate and chooses to relate to us. You see, the problem with the world's love, the problem, the, the, the problem with this romantic idea of love is that it misses on the hugeness of love and what love requires. It misses on this picture of what it means to give everything you have for another person. In fact, most of us in our lives will spend a lot of our time fulfilling the deep needs of our own soul with things that are wildly insufficient. I mean, even the term soulmate has this implication that what I really need at, my, at the deepest part of me, who I really am, can be accomplished in someone else. And what we've been saying throughout the whole series, particularly beginning in week one, is that the deepest needs of your soul have to be met by God alone. And then when God begins to, to work in us, it's him who enables us to have different kinds of relationships than the rest of the world. It's a way in which our own relationships are informed. In fact, the way the world does its sort of relational kind of stuff is unintentionally ruining the greatest and best part of love. The covenant we're most accustomed to, the one we know most more than anything else, the one we see most often, even if it's broken and violated, is the covenant of marriage. And I want you to, if you have your Bible, you might want to jump to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to work our way through that a little bit. This is a famous passage on marriage that the Apostle Paul writes in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Now, you have to remember, before he gets to this part, there's, there's four other chapters that get to this point. Paul's talked a lot about our own identity. In fact, he starts out with his letter by addressing it to the, God's holy people, the saints. He doesn't address the letter to God's sinners. He addresses the letter to God's holy people, which is the, some translations is just the word saint, meaning you are already people who are declared something because you belong to Jesus. Your faith has been credited to you as righteousness. 
And he's talked about living together, about our identity, about being built up together as a community of people, even using the term cornerstone, which you saw earlier in some of the songs we were singing. And now he gets to how how does it work in in marriage relationships? How is this community supposed to work? And it starts in verse 21, which says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, when he says this, when Paul writes this, this is incredibly controversial. In all other groups in the Roman world at this time, all of the ways that they would gather were incredibly stratified. There are some people who get rights and privileges and other people who serve those with rights and privileges, but there's not really a, there's no sense that everybody should serve each other. And he starts out by saying, submit to one another. Because the thick darkness, the presence of God is among us because of reverence. In some translations you have out of fear of, of Jesus, out of fear of Christ. But it says, submit one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Meaning the, every single person in this community, I don't care if you're the president of whatever or you're a slave, if we're part of the same community of people gathered in Jesus' name, then there will be no stratification. There will be no sort of hierarchy of people. We all, every one of us, submits to each other. Now let's look at verse 22 and 23, which is incredibly controversial for us. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Let me stop right here. I, uh, I grew up in a house where I was the only child of a single mom. I have seen the idea of submission by women that has been abused. It has been hijacked out of this passage. It has been, um, it has been an excuse for a lot of treatment of people that is totally unacceptable. In fact, the word submit is not in the 22nd verse at all. In the Greek. It's only, in the, it's only in the 21st verse in which everybody's submitting to each other. Now, scholars all agree, submit, by implication, needs to be in the 22nd verse. But it's contingent on the first verse. Meaning we don't have, it just says likewise to your, it says wives likewise to your husbands, essentially. Likewise to your own husbands, essentially. In other words, we are a community of people, Paul establishes, in which everybody is working out what it means to submit to each other. If you just had verse 22 in the Greek, it wouldn't make sense. Because what it's, it's connected to this idea of everybody submitting to each other. Now, when people extract this, hijack it out of the Bible, and make it say things it doesn't, it does damage. Continuing on, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, remember, everybody is linked under this idea of everybody submits to each other. Now, what tends to happen for us is submission has become such an incredibly bad word. It's become so, it's been so maligned over the course of our own society and our own world because people have broken what it means. I want you to see this, just moving up on your outline a little bit, backwards a little bit, Genesis 1. This is, this is God's intention for men and women in relationships. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What's intended for human relationships is that men and women would share in the dominion over all of the created order. That men and women would be equal partners in in, uh, in in multiplying over the earth. You can't do that on your own. That they are equal partners in bearing the image of God. 
it's not until the third chapter of Genesis where you start seeing blame and like finger pointing and accusation and all this other stuff where, in other words, the relationship, the abuse of the word submit and the abuse of human relationships comes after sin begins to start entering into the world. God's intention is that there'd be this harmony. Both partners share in the dominion, the reflecting of God's image into the world. Now back to this verse. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. We have such a bad impression of submission because we think only the powerful people have, it, have got their act together. But that can't be true because that's not the way Jesus operated himself. If submission was bad, Jesus would have never done it. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 10. The disciples are arguing about who gets to have special roles in, his, in the kingdom as it's coming to its fulfillment. And Jesus says this. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. In some, in some translations it says, but among you it should be quite different. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man, which is a royal title for Jesus, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, submission isn't bad, because otherwise Jesus wouldn't have done it. And so Paul has this really controversial thing we have to wrestle with, which is everybody submit to each other, wives submit to your husbands. Now, some of you guys are like, I love that you're talking about this, man. This is great. Super Bowl's coming up. <laughs> My feet are already on the coffee table. I'm imagining today. I was, did you hear what he was talking about? Man, I just, just, man I'm, just, I'm just quoting the Bible here. You know, just you submit. Now, one of the things that's controversial about the, what Paul's talking about, first of all, is that the women, the, the wives here, are willingly submitting. There's no force or coercion. There's no intimidation. It's not, husband, make sure you get your wives to submit. It is a gift that the wife gives to her husband on her own will. And before we get too carried away, guys, we should read the 25th verse, which says this. Husbands, love your wives. Stop right there. In the Roman world, and throughout all of the Hellenistic world, all the Greek world too, husbands were not instructed in any of the, like that writing to love their wives. The instruction for husbands was simply to care for them, make sure they had a place to live, make sure they could bear your offspring, give them some food. That's it. Everything else after that is sort of like, doesn't matter. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. If you grew up in the church, this is that word love, that like you're, it's like the first Greek word you learn if you've ever been around church. It's the word agape. It's hagapesin is the word here, which is the unconditional, I'll give anything, I'll do everything I can, whatever it takes to love you. Husbands, love your wives. Don't just tolerate them. Don't just care about them. Don't make them. That's not what this is about. Then he continues on. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Flashback to the covenant that we talked about with Abram. There is the God himself bearing the full weight of the covenant upon himself. Such that no matter who's, who messes up in the covenant, whether it's going to be God who's perfect, he's, he's got a pretty good track record, or it's going to be human beings... I bear the weight of the curse. Jesus embodies this very idea in himself. He takes upon himself the full curse upon his own body on the cross. The weight of the covenant falls upon him. Now, 
Paul says, talking about husbands. That same weight of the covenant is upon you in marriage. That means you got, if you haven't yet jumped in front of a bus to save your wife, you got some room to grow as a husband. You see, this is how submission is described for the husband. You give everything. In fact, as the passage goes on, we don't have it on, the, on your outline. But as the passage goes on, Paul begins to describe how the husband is the one who presents his own, he presents his wife as beautiful and a radiant bride. And then Paul goes, am I talking about the church or am I talking about, am I talking about Jesus or am I talking about marriage? And he goes, I'm talking about Jesus. The beautiful bride of Christ is the church who willingly submits to him, not out of force of coercion, but saying, because of everything you have done, because you give to me a new life, I choose to follow you. That's the model for marriage and relationships. You see, it isn't about just the issue of finding the right person, though it's good to find the right person, and every one of us should be picky. But that's just merely the beginning. Marriage, all relationships, are really hard work. There's a reason why the vows, when you hear a marriage, a wedding ceremony, they don't have an if clause. Better for worse. Sickness and health. Richer for poorer. It's not, if these things start to get a little tough, this person probably isn't your soulmate. Go find someone else. What's being expressed here is we submit to each other. Husbands, you're willing to die. Now, I do want to say, I want to come back to this again. Some of you in this room, you just imagine, this is more idealistic than anything we've talked about. But there'd be a relationship where a husband is willing to die for a spouse or a, a, a wife who's saying, because I love Jesus, part of what we do as a community of believers, we submit to each other, I'm choosing that, that's my gift to you. Some of you can't imagine that, I get it. Some of you are looking at me going, this is insane. All I'm saying is this, that marriage, among other things, there's a lot of things marriage does, but marriage is the best human symbol of God's love for us. It's the best we got. And while it's made of broken people who have baggage, who have issues, who are working through those issues, who are being restored in the, to be more and more in the image of Jesus because of the Holy Spirit, all, all of those things are true. But yet it is still the symbol that embodies God's love for his church. Him, how many, how many times in the Bible do you see him being described as a bridegroom? And those he's coming to get as the bride. See, as I think about this, this is the love that we're talking about. God's love is an all-sacrificing, submissive. I mean, the way his power is made evident is in his submission and his willingness to serve. And I wonder what that looks like for us. Let me give you a sense of my own life. Because I am a, despite the fact that you might believe to me to be a perfect husband, uh, you know, let me just deal with that real quick. Um, last week, last week, two weeks ago, we had some people over for dinner. And I had made dinner, and I had cleaned up the dishes. And by clean up the dishes, this is some, maybe, maybe one of you can relate to this. I know all of you would never do this. But you clean up, you just gathered the plates near the sink. <laughs> As if by association with the sink, they would somehow become clean. I know, I'm the only person who's ever done that. Like, look, I cleaned up all the dishes. They're right over there. I take the laughter to be a little bit of a knowing laugh. So, um. Uh, there's all the dishes right there, and um, Amanda says to me, she goes, hey, the dishwasher is empty. <laughs> Long, thoughtful pause. To which Now, I'm going to say something here, everybody, and I want all of you to just remember I'm a human being, and your laughter and your shameful sounds will hurt my soul. 
So I say, some, so remember, dishes are gathered neatly near the sink. That's like a C minus. Uh, they're right there. And she says, the dishwasher's empty. And I say something to the effect of, you're on it. Careful. Hey, careful. <laughs> careful. You judging people. Now. So I, now, what, what, I, what I'm expecting after I say that, and I realize one of those times where you're like, please, can I catch those words? Just get back in there. I didn't say anything. I was just, you know. She, she's like, she goes, now what I expect is like either the like death melt, like I stare, like the, my laser beams will just, you know, melt your face like a Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know. Ah! I'm just expecting that to happen. That doesn't happen. I'm expecting her to like laugh at me and walk out of the room like, <laughs> that's hilarious. Okay, and walk out of the room, which all, both of those things, she's never done, by the way, but I'm just expecting that's what would happen because of what I just said. But here's what she does. And it was the most painful thing. She just goes, okay. I know, I know, I can hear you saying that. So I'm like, I'm like, oh, and then I just felt like, oh, uh, is there like, uh, let, me, let me get a mop or something, or let me just do something. And like, hey, kids, let's, uh, let's have a Spanish lesson or something. Let me teach the, I'm working with the kids over here. We're, hey, let's give some money to the poor. I mean, I was like, whatever we can, something else. Because it's in that moment that the gift of my wife Amanda was a gift of submission and all it did was just, it came right in my face. Wow. This is what this looks like. Now I realize there are probably more things that I've done in my past that I don't even remember that have wounded Amanda, that have been done damage to her, that she remembers that I don't. But in that moment I went, oh, this is what this is about. She's under no obligation to do anything. This is a choosing. I wonder what that looks like for you. Now, some of you have, there's, there are bigger offenses that are on the, in your own mind that have wounded you, that have got to you. But let me just ask you, and I realize this, isn't, this can't cover everything and cover everybody's scenario, but let me ask you, is there a way in which maybe an act of submission by either party, a willingness to die for myself or a willingness to submit, might actually open the door to something else, to some kind of healing. Maybe there's something there for us. It, the, the Bible says often about our relationships, in addition to sort of us being filled with God's spirit when we, when we choose to follow Jesus, that there's this supernatural thing that happens in which God embodies us or comes into us. There's also this other thing that happens in which the Bible frequently uses phrases like this. Because you've been forgiven, or in view of God's mercy, or in light of God's goodness, or in light of his mercy, then we ought to choose to follow or partner with Jesus in this particular way of living. Let me ask you, as we think about all of our relationships, in view of God's mercy, what does it look like to live them out as we talked about? Here's what I mean. In your own marriage, for those of you who are married, is there not a more romantic thing than for you to say to the other person, I'm willing to be with you no matter how hard it gets. I choose to submit to you. I choose to serve you. I will give my life for you. That is far more romantic than I found the person I was looking for and I'm glad I don't have to do any more work. How do you say that this week to your spouse if you're married? Maybe it is something as simple as the dishes. Maybe it's something that you begin to say, you know what, I blew it in this way and I want you to know I'm deeply sorry. 
for those of you who are dating, as you're thinking about what it looks like to find that right other person, as you're in those relationships, are you willing to make the, are you willing to make the sacrifice that says, if I choose this person, am I willing to submit to them? Am I willing to die for that person? Women, if you're looking for a guy, do you have that sense that he would die for me? Or am I willing, is, is he so great that I'm willing, to, I'm willing to submit to this person against all of whatever the world says about what submission means? And guys, do you have a sense that you go, I'm going to die for this woman. I would die for her over and over and over again. Because that's the role of the husband in this covenant relationship. And then in friendships. Maybe this, this is, as I think about it, and all the other relationships that sort of govern our lives that are part of our lives. I was a high school pastor for a number of years, about 10 years. And one of the ways I would explain this concept to high school students was like this. What do all high school, imagine a pack of about seven or eight guys, high school guys, running to a parking lot, about to jump in a car. They're all, as soon as they're within sight of the car, someone will yell what? Shotgun. Ah, shotgun. And they'll try to yell faster than anybody else who ever says it first as long as you're, there's all kinds of stipulations. You know, you have to be within a certain number of yardage. You can see the car clearly. You can't just see the antenna. You have to see at least the whole window, whatever else it is. But you can yell it, and that means you get to ride in the front seat. Because who would ever want to ride in any other seat? Because that's just humiliating, you know, riding in someone's suburban in the back seat. So I used to tell high school kids, I would say, all of you are going to have this scenario. You're going to be running towards the car. Why don't one of you just yell, back middle? <laughs> I got back middle. Now, you want to see a group of high school kids stop in their tracks. <laughs> I choose the least, least comfortable seat, back middle. That's me. I choose back middle. Woo, I got it. Nobody else called it. I love claustrophobia. It's like my favorite thing. You love it. Just packed in, sweaty dudes next to you. I'd love it. Because the idea would say, even though it's my right to choose the front seat, I can call it, I'm choosing to use my power of choice in this situation to choose the least desirable seat to serve everybody else. Now, by way of analogy, I don't know how that plays out in every one of your relationships, but what does it look like for you in your work relationships with your neighbors, with your friends, with whomever else, to say simply, I choose the back middle? Because this is the, this is the picture of God's love, that he would choose to serve, that he would bear the weight of all the responsibility of a covenant relationship upon himself. Paul says that we ought to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And that that ought to be the guiding ethic of all of our relationships, primarily and best exemplified in marriage. Wives submit, husbands give up everything you've got so that your own relationship flourishes. You bear the weight. And in friendships, I choose the back metal seat for the sake of another. Now the dominant other picture, the other theme that you see in the Bible that Jesus gives to us about the relationship between God and his people, the one Jesus sort of says, this is how we're going to symbolize and embody the covenant relationship between me, the bridegroom, and you, my bride, the church. The way we're going to symbolize that is in remembering what it was accomplished on the cross, me bearing the full weight of the curse of the covenant upon myself, that you might have life. Jesus explains this to his disciples in the Last Supper. The Bible says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. 
In the same way he took the cup, saying this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you do so in remembrance of me. In other words, every time the bride of Christ, us, gets together and takes communion, we acknowledge Jesus' role in upholding the covenant oath upon himself. So you're going to get a chance to acknowledge that, to remember that in a moment. Before we do that, though, would you just close your eyes that we might pray? Lord Jesus, we are a room, of, we are a room full of people who know what it is to experience the pain of broken relationships. We're people that have experienced people abusing what it means to submit and to call upon the submission of us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you as much as we know how that you willingly chose to be a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. God, would you bring to light our relationships in our midst, the ones, you know, we can't control anybody else in our life, but we can control at least some level of our own choice. God, would you bring to mind our own relationships that maybe need a little bridge, that may need a door to be opened, in which we might say we submit to another. And God, would your own covenant love for us be remembered and cherished as we take and receive communion. We, your bride, acknowledge your self, self-giving, self-sacrificial love as our groom who went to the cross that we might have life. And so, Jesus, we take communion and we respond to you and your great love. In your name we pray. Amen. Here's some